Good morning, good morning. So we go to Ezekiel this morning, and we'll be going to Romans also. Ezekiel 37, reading from verse 21 through to verse 28. So that is 840 in your pew Bibles. And afterwards, we'll flip over to Romans chapter 11, and that is 10.99 in your pew Bibles. Let's read Ezekiel 37, verse 21 through to verse 28. And say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them, and they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms." They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offenses, for I will save them from all their sinful backsliding, and I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God." My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. Amen. Let's turn to Romans chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, then verse 11 to the end. Verse 1. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself a descendant of Abraham, from the tribe of Benjamin, God did not reject his people, whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, Elijah how he appealed to God against Israel? Verse 11. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, 
Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their, fulfill, will their fullness bring? I am talking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godliness away from Jacob, or godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, 
they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his path beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of God? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. O oh, Father in heaven, once again, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for all your people who are gathered here to hear you, to hear your word. And as Pastor Yuri comes to share what you have laid on his heart, let us listen attentively and apply your word to our heart. Amen. Thank you, Michael. And first, I want to apologize to our kids this morning. I had a story all prepared, um, and I was really looking forward to, to, to telling it with you up here at the front, um, but it seems that God had other plans for me this morning, and uh, as a warning to you in the congregation, it is a bit of a long message, but I tried to make it so that uh, we don't go too long. And next week, kids, we'll have a good story. The central truth of today's message is the ongoing story of Israel is a thrilling mystery. Israel, root and branch, will always be central to God's eternal plan to redeem all of creation. The ongoing story of Israel is a thrilling mystery. Israel, root and branch, will always be central to God's eternal plan to redeem all of creation. Three times in the passage we just heard Michael read, Paul explicitly warns the Gentile believers in the church at Rome not to get a big fat head. Verse, chapter 11, verse 18, he says, Do not boast. And then more forcefully in verse 20, Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. And finally in verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant so that you may not be conceited. Now, I'm stressing this right up front because I'm aware that the way I framed today's question 
betrays the same odor of contempt that most of us who are Gentile Christians give off without realizing it when we talk to Jews about our faith in Jesus, or often when we talk about Jews among ourselves. The only reason I even dared to pose this question in the way that I did, has God replaced his people Israel, is that Paul himself phrases practically the same question in practically the same way at the beginning of Romans 11. Has God rejected his people, Paul asks. His reaction is immediate, almost violent. By no means, he says in our translations. Of course not, certainly not, absolutely not, or God forbid in other translations. Most literally, it would be rendered, never may it be. Has God rejected his people? Never may it be. So if Paul is so adamant that God has not rejected his people, he clearly would have at least as strong a reaction to the question I've posed of whether God has replaced his people. And yet, it's a question that, sadly, we need to keep asking and answering forcefully because the dominant assumption of most Christians throughout history is that God has. This is known as supersessionism. Supersessionism. That is, that the church has superseded or replaced Israel as God's chosen people. And it's been the official doctrine of the Catholic Church and of the Orthodox Church, as well as the unofficial doctrine, the assumption of many Protestant churches. Even many of us who rightly reject the idea officially still often allow it to creep into the background, affecting our attitudes and our politics, even if it doesn't affect our careful theology. But obviously, Paul, in his repeated warnings to Gentile believers, realized our sinful tendency to look down on him and his kinfolk. But that's not the reason he asked his rhetorical question, has God rejected Israel? No, it's only at verse 13 in chapter 11 that he turns and pointedly says, I am talking to you, Gentiles. Prior to that, starting way back in chapter 9, he's been more or less preaching to himself working through a long and unwelcome wrinkle in this book-length explanation of the gospel and its implications. I say it's unwelcome because the thoughts he expresses are as difficult for us to understand and accept as they are for him to contemplate. For us, they're merely troubling, but for Paul, they're deeply personal, and they take a high emotional toll on him. So let's turn back to chapter 9 for a second. And while we're going there, then you probably just have to flip the page back. As an aside, I'd just say that I actually seriously contemplated listing chapters 9 through 11 as our sermon scripture for this week, but that would have been a little bit too discouraging, I think. Um, but in the, end, I, so in the end, I just decided to list the end, the climax of these chapters. And it's also the climax, incidentally, of the whole letter. And we will get there, but first we need to work up to it so that we understand correctly, so that we know that we're taking Paul and understanding his words correctly. Paul says in verse 2 of chapter 9, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Here Paul's admitting to a profound personal crisis. 
Now, this is a surprise given the master strokes of chapter 8 and especially the thrilling heights, the emotional climax he brings us to right at the end of it. As Pastor Mark often reminds us, chapter 8 is one of his favorite chapters in the whole Bible, as it is for me, and I suspect it is for many of us. But for Paul, for Paul, the sheer ecstasy of the knowledge that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus brings with it the shattering realization that that is not the case for many of the people he loves best. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. And here, before we go further, it's important for us to define just what Paul means when he refers to Israel. The way that we in the modern world think of nationhood and even of ethnicity is quite different from how it was conceived in the ancient world. This is especially true in the case of Israel and of how Paul and the other biblical authors thought of themselves as Israel. The way we think about cultural identity usually focuses on externals. The modern approach is to sort people into categories based on observable characteristics. This is what scientists call taxonomy. In terms of cultural identity, nowadays our broadest categories are defined by your country of origin, the place you call home, the way you look, the language that you speak, and to a lesser and lesser extent, your traditions, a category into which the modern world lumps religion. There is also now the tendency to sort people according to the logic of markets. Algorithms are constantly computing your age, your gender, your habits, your tastes, your earning power, your interests, and again, your religion, to try and predict what you're most likely to buy. This sorting of, but the sorting of sociologists and activists can also make you part of an interest group, taking into account power dynamics, historic grievances, and systemic oppression. Now, unfortunately, if you are reading the NIV or the ESV, those translations inadvertently reflect some of these obsessions of the recent past in employing the word race to describe Israel. That word is woefully anachronistic for a Bible translation, since it only came into popular usage in the 19th century, when race was a pseudoscience a way to sort people based mainly on superficial physical attributes and geography. Thankfully, that so-called science has now been utterly discredited. It is now understood that less obvious physical characteristics completely upset the earlier seemingly obvious racial groupings, which are now seen as ridiculously arbitrary and unscientific. And as Colin Kidd writes in his fascinating book, The Forging of Races, Races are mere figments of our imagination. He goes on, common sense about races, so-called common sense about races, turns out on closer inspection to be a myth. Although color differences are real, of course, these turn out to be trivial, a red herring in the investigation of human populations. Color says little about what lies beneath the skin. There are myriad sorts of human variation of which visible racial differences amount to only a small 
proportion. Moreover, the different types of variation do not move in parallel. Much less do they generate any consistent sort of racial patterning. Color is only one among the many biological variations found among humans. Also, the modern idea of countries, or to be more precise, nation states, just didn't exist until a few hundred years ago. A nation state is a relatively impersonal structure, something that arose sometimes more, sometimes less arbitrarily. They have strong central governments that are sovereign over everything within well-defined borders. Their many layers of bureaucracy maintain law and order, manage the economy, build educational structures which serve at least in part to promote its official languages and reinforce a sense of national identity, often through a creative repackaging of history that fosters harmony and cohesion. Nationalism, as we know it today, simply wasn't a thing in Paul's time. He wasn't proud to be Jewish because he was from the state of Israel. He wasn't, in fact, and his parents weren't. He was from modern-day Turkey. In other words, he called himself an Israelite, but it's not because Israel was his country of origin. Like other people in most ancient and tribal cultures, Paul, first of all, speaks in terms of who his family is. In other words, identity in those days was not the identity of an objective social scientist, sorting people into types from the outside looking in. Identity was from the bottom up. You knew who your parents were and who their parents were before them going back and back as far as your most famous ancestors. You knew who your people were. Now, the ESV gets verse 3 of chapter 9 pretty well. Paul calls the people of Israel his brothers, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. The word translated as kinsmen in the ESV and as race in the NIV is a combination of the words offspring and with, or together with. In other words, the people that you're bound together with by birth, that's what Paul is talking about, his kinsmen. And of course, the knowledge of his separation from them would have been incredibly painful. But that strained family relationship, the identity of tribe and clan from the bottom, of up, bottom up, a child of Abraham, of the tribe of, of, the, of, the tribe of uh, Benjamin, as he says in chapter 11, that strained family relationship is not actually what pains him the most. What was most important to Paul about his kinsmen what was, what, what, what was most distinctive about his identity as an Israelite is what he describes in glowing terms in verses 4 to 5 of chapter 9. This is a top-down identity. It is an identity that no other people on the face of the earth has enjoyed at any time in history. Theirs, he says... Theirs, my kinsmen according to the flesh, theirs is 
the adoption as sons. Theirs is the divine glory. Now, this is exactly what he was just talking about, breathlessly, exultantly, in chapter 8. The adoption he spoke of there was being called in a unique way. The adoption he spoke of there was being called in a unique way God's own children. Inheriting the kingdom along with Christ by virtue of being Jesus' adopted brothers and sisters. The glory he speaks of is the glory of the renewed creation mysteriously bound up with the adopted children of God. As chapter 8 verse 21 puts it, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And this adoption, this glory belongs to the people of Israel. It is theirs by right. Why? Because, as Paul goes on to say in verse 4 of chapter 9, theirs are the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. These are all things that God himself has graciously lavished on them, things that only God could give, only God could reveal. And he gave them all this, not because they deserved it as if anyone could. He gave it to them for his own purposes, for his own glory. Theirs, Paul concludes, are the patriarchs. And kids, if you're listening, those are some of the people we've been talking about. Noah, well, not so much Noah, but Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his sons. And Moses, the servant of God and the lawbringer, the greatest of the great men of old, not because they were in themselves anything special, but because God chose to reveal himself to the world through them. Supremely in Christ, as Paul says, and is quick to point out, Christ who is God over all. All these things belong to Israel. Adoption, glory, covenants, the law, worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and the Messiah who is God over all. Paul is speaking, of course, of God's electing love, God's divine right to interact with his creation in the way that he sees fit. His eternal plan to choose a people for himself in order to redeem the fallen world to eventually put all things right. That's the inspiring vision of chapter 8. And the crushing realization of Paul immediately afterwards is that the very people to whom the exalted vision was given in Paul's time, as well as ours, were mostly not able to see it. So Paul is gutted. He's gutted by the very hope he's just finished setting out for us. He's gutted on the emotional level and the relational level, knowing that most of his family, his clan, his tribe, has rejected Jesus, their Messiah. Has refused to acknowledge that their destiny is bound up with him. 
But even more than that, Paul is gutted on a spiritual level. Why? Because he knew the promises of God. With his training and his brains, he probably knew them better than almost anyone else of his generation. And seeing that the very people to whom the promises were made were missing out on them tempted him to doubt. As he says, I could wish myself cursed, even cut off from Christ. He needed to spend the next three chapters preaching to himself as well as his hearers, reminding himself as well as them that it is not as though the word of God has failed. He pulls out all the stops to prove that assertion, using relentless logic, a deep knowledge of biblical history, and a dazzling array of supporting scriptures from Genesis to Malachi. Now, many of us Gentiles wonder what all the fuss is about. Truth be told, we find chapter 9 kind of disturbing, chapters 10 and 11 obscure, and if we're honest, we would have been happier if Paul had left off his glorious presentation of the gospel at the end of chapter 8 and moved straight to material we find in chapter 12. But Israel, according to Paul, is not just one human identity among many others. Israel is unique. Israel lasts. Israel has been elected by God, a singular people chosen for a singular mission. For Paul, in this, his most complete dissertation on the meaning of the gospel, it was not an option to not deal with his disappointment in the apparent failure of God's promises to Israel. It was not an option because for Paul, Israel, root and branch, is and will always be central to God's eternal plan to redeem all creation. Israel cannot, must not be neglected or passed over. Israel is not merely incidental to God's purposes. Israel will not be a footnote in the annals of eternity. Israel's story is the gospel story. And the gospel story is Israel's story. Paul structures this gospel masterpiece, this letter to the church at Rome, like a great composer. Right from the very beginning of the book, he uses his knowledge that he's writing to a mixed group to give it its distinctive shape. He shifts his focus from his Gentile hearers to his fellow Jews and then back and so on, anticipating their questions and their objections, guiding the flow of his arguments until they build the force of a tidal wave. What we thought was the crest in chapter 8 turns out only to have been the prelude. Chapters 9 and 10 seem to ebb away. But the depths of Paul's despair and the imperceptible crescendo make the final moment of transcendence at the end of chapter 11 all the more astonishing when Paul explodes with praise, a glorious gospel apotheosis. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom, and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For from him, and through him, 
and to him are all things. Israel, the chosen, chose against God. Yet Paul now sees that even their fateful choice would not, could not shake him. It could not cancel their election, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. By the middle of chapter 11, Paul finally helps us, to, helps us to firmly grasp that this has all been part of the plan. He sums it up in verse 15. Israel's rejection of God means the reconciliation of the world. Now this, again, is that word cosmos, which Mark has been reminding us means the whole of creation. But Paul takes it a step further. Their acceptance of God means life from the dead. But for who? For them? For the Gentiles? No, once again, it is the cosmos he's referring to. It is the world that he has in mind, Jews and Gentiles, animals and plants, stars and planets and galaxies, the whole of the universe in bondage to decay. We'll see life from the dead through the acceptance of Israel, of their Messiah. Israel remains the chosen people even as they reject the chooser. Verse 16, they are the holy bread, set apart, offered for the rest of the created world. Jews, uniquely through thousands of years of painful experience, have come to understand that to be chosen does not make you the hero of the story. That's why they alone among the peoples of the world perceive that God's election is both a blessing and a curse. As Tevye says in his classic line from Fiddler on the Roof, I know, I know, we're your chosen people. But once in a while, can't you choose someone else? By contrast, our arrogant Gentile minds leap to put ourselves in Israel's place. We can't seem to help it. We assume that election is all about being the hero, all about victory for ourselves, about the triumph of our institutions, about the glory of our civilization. We'll come back to this in a minute, but for now, we've laid the groundwork with Paul. So now we can quickly work through the end of chapter 11 to discover why Paul sees the destiny of Israel as the apex of the gospel. The destiny of Israel as the apex, the peak of the gospel. Paul sums up what he's been talking about for the past three chapters by using an illustration. Like his master, Jesus, he sketches a kind of parable to help us grasp the supra-rational love, the supra-rational logic, I should say, of God's electing love. This picture helps us to see the reason beyond reason. God's mysterious purple, purpose for Israel. Israel is the cultivated, or more literally, the good 
the desired olive tree. This is looking at verse 24. Israel is the cultivated, or that word is more literally translated as the good or the desired olive tree. The Gentiles are the wild olive trees. Here's another way of putting that. God planted Israel in his garden. We are the weeds. That is, we Gentiles are wild. The naturally occurring strain of humanity. We're strong, maybe not as individuals, but by the sheer force of our mushrooming number. By the fact that our cultures multiply and obscure everything else. Our underlying assumptions, our ways, and our attitudes are basically all the same. We want to succeed. So we dominate, we invade, we conquer, and to avoid any possible danger of dying out, we diversify, we hybridize, so that some part of us always goes on. We want to succeed, and we always do succeed, because we are always prepared to do whatever we have to, to do whatever it takes in order to succeed. Israel, on the other hand, is another story. This olive tree, the cultivated olive tree, is the kind of plant that only thrives under the watchful care of the gardener. It is selected not for any inherent beauty, not because it's obviously better than any other variety, but simply because it suits the gardener's plans. It's his garden. So it's his business to choose whatever he sees fit to plant and to cultivate. Israel is the good olive tree, not because it's good in itself, but because he pronounces it good. It's the desired olive tree for the simple reason that the gardener is the one who planted it, for his own mysterious purposes. And against all odds, Israel has survived. For thousands of years, Israel has remained Israel while doing everything they possibly could to avoid being like the Gentiles, to reject invasion and assimilationist survival strategies. The distinctiveness of the Jewish people to whom belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, and the patriarchs remains, whether the individuals are religious or not. Wherever they're from, Whatever their personal history, Jews are Jews. They understand themselves to be a people set apart, and most continue to identify as God's chosen people, even if they don't believe in God. This is unique, and it's particularly amazing because Jews have been so mistreated and scattered so widely is there any other distinct people group that can credibly claim such a long and continuous heritage? Is there any group that's been driven so relentlessly to the farthest ends of the earth and still maintained such a sense of separateness from it? No. How did they manage it? Well, quite simply, they didn't. God did it. God did it. 
Israel survived as Israel because they are, to use Paul's image, God's own olive tree. He has chosen them. He has miraculously preserved them for his own namesake, for his own glory, to fulfill his purposes for them. And he will continue to do so until all is accomplished. And this is the great accomplishment of God that so staggers Paul. God used the chosen people's rejection of the very one who chose them to extend Israel's adoption, glory, covenants, law, worship, promises, and patriarchs to the Gentiles. Contrary to nature, by faith, he has grafted the weedy, wild branches into the root. At the same time, Paul tells us, many of the natural branches of the cultivated tree have been broken off. They've been pruned by the gardener himself, as he says in verse 20. Why? For their unbelief. But they're still identified as branches of the cultivated tree. They have been removed, although, as Paul eagerly points out, they can be grafted in again if they do not continue in their unbelief. The good olive tree of Israel, shorn, denuded, breaks Paul's heart. But the mystery of God's garden is that it is through this painful cutting away that the weeds are welcomed so long as they find new life in his planting. So long as they continue in his kindness. And when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, Paul says, all Israel will be saved. What does this mean? What does all Israel refer to? And what will all Israel being saved look like? The answers to that must remain somewhat mysterious. Still, we have a lot of hints in a lot of places in the Bible. Some of those hints are contained in the two passages from Isaiah that Paul quotes here, starting in verse 26. Now, if we were to look at them in context, these are passages that point in gloriously poetic language to the end of all things, to the general repentance of the people of Israel, to the return of faithful Israel to the promised land, to the joyful devotion of faithful Gentiles, grafted in alongside them and to the new heavens and the new earth in the eternal home that is being prepared for those whom God calls there the branch of my planting. But one of the difficulties with that passage or those passages in Isaiah is that they're so beautifully poetic, so rich in metaphor that historically many interpreters, especially those who are Catholic or Orthodox, have felt the license to impose a vague Christian interpretation on them, preferring symbolism over plain language, refusing to acknowledge the Bible's emphasis first on Israel and then on the Gentiles. Even the Reformed stream of theology that I usually agree with most strongly often stumbles over Israel. 
One Reformed seminary professor I read in preparation for today's message grumbled about the Israelocentrism of dispensationalists. Now, I'm not a dispensationalist myself, but if you begrudge a central role for Israel, you pretty much begrudge the whole Bible. Sadly, in trying to find a way to validate their own interests, such interpretives miss the opportunity to take a hard look at themselves and blind themselves to the genuine hope to which biblical prophecy actually points. Interpreting prophecy in a self-serving way can seem harmless, but it can have serious consequences, even beyond self-delusion, as we'll see at the end of today's message. That's why instead of turning to the passage about Israel's salvation that Paul quotes, I decided that we would be better off looking at Ezekiel chapter 37 today. So that's found on page 841 in your pew Bibles. I'll need to take my glasses off to get there. Chapter, verse eight, sorry, page 841 in your pew Bibles is where you can find Ezekiel chapter 37 starting in verse 21. So while you're turning there, I'm just going to encourage you that we are past the halfway point in this sermon. <laughs> and <laughs> we aren't going to spend too much time here in Ezekiel. But I think it's important to look at it because this is the end of a passage which pictures the resolution of the problem of Israel's sin and Israel's punishment. That's what Ezekiel has been understandably concerned with throughout the earlier part of his book, seeing as he lived in Babylon as an exile along with the rest of his community. He was being punished alongside with all of them. And some scholars think that this chapter, Ezekiel 37, may have actually served as the original ending of Ezekiel's book, since the rest of the visions in the book seem to have been given to him much later. Anyways, because this passage is not quite as poetic as Isaiah is, it's also much more straightforward to understand. So it's also a good example to use to teach you how to read and understand Old Testament prophecy in general. My first principle in interpreting Old Testament prophecy is, first, to always take the plainest meaning possible from the text. Always take the plainest meaning possible from the text. That's not the same thing as taking things literally. Some things are obviously intended to be symbols, like wild olives trees, for example. Sometimes the meaning of those symbols are spelled out or otherwise obvious, and sometimes they're not. And that brings us to the second principle. When the meaning is not obvious, we don't have the right to supply our own meaning. And our conclusions will have to remain tentative. So, privilege plain meanings and minimize the amount of speculation you do and hold things lightly when you are speculating. So, chapter uh, 37 of Ezekiel, verse 21, in the second, starting in the second half of the verse. Now, Ezekiel has been using an, a simple object lesson, lesson from God, who's told him to use two sticks to symbolize the northern kingdom and the southern kingdoms coming together. And here, in the middle of verse 21, God orders Ezekiel to tell the people plainly, I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they've gone, I will gather them from all around, and bring them back to their land. 
Now, if that weren't clear enough, God gets even more specific later on, referring to the landscape of Israel, the mountains of Israel, in verse 22. And then in verse 25, he talks about their homeland, saying plainly, they will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob. They will live in the land where your fathers lived. Since this language is so plain, so concrete, it's reasonable to assume that God's not speaking symbolically here of some spiritual homeland. Ezekiel's hearers living in Babylon and longing for home would have been pretty confused if Ezekiel were to turn around and say, psych, this is just a metaphor. <laughs> we're not really ever going home. Oh, and by the way, we're not really ever going to be reunited with the rest of the house of Israel either. It's actually going to be the Gentiles who get to enjoy all this stuff. Great, huh? God is just giving us this false hope to help us to find a way to be at peace with living in exile. Seems pretty ridiculous to me. Now, Ezekiel, like most of the prophets, doesn't give his listeners a time frame when these things that he's predicting will take place. But he does give them some very specific markers to look for to know that the prophecy is being fulfilled. First of all, verse 22, he tells them that there will be one king, one king over all of them. In verse 24, he identifies that king as David. Verse 24, that king is David. Now, it would have been obvious to them that that was either a symbol or a miracle, since David had been dead a long time. But here's another principle to keep in mind. When symbolism is used, it has to be a meaningful symbol. That is, a symbol is not an empty vessel that can mean whatever you want it to. Otherwise, it's pretty useless as a symbol. The most likely expectation for Ezekiel's listeners is that the king he predicted would be from the house of David. Someone who either matched or exceeded David in his kingly perfection. Some other markers. Verse 23. All the people will have turned from their idols, their offenses, and their sinful backsliding. And, God says, verse 23, I will cleanse them. Now that sounds an awful lot like the language that Paul quotes from Isaiah. I take away their sins when I take away their sins. I will cleanse them. So even without a specific timestamp for this prediction, we should be able to figure out by this point that Ezekiel's prophecy here has not yet taken place. Yes, King David has come. Jesus fulfilled that part of it. But while Israel had, by the time of Jesus, turned from their idols, at least the physical ones, no one could credibly claim that they had turned from their backsliding or from all of their offenses. No one can credibly claim that about anyone on the planet yet. And given that the beginning of the prophecy seems like it should be read in a fairly straightforward way, there's no reason to think that the same strategy cannot be used for the rest of it. So even if some of the elements in Ezekiel's prophecy seem a little weird or far-fetched, even if they don't fit into our current theological scheme since none of it has happened yet, there's no reason to think that God will not bring it about in a way that satisfies a plain reading of the text. Now I want to highlight especially the last three verses of the chapter, since there he seems to be describing, fairly, describing in fairly understandable language exactly 
what Paul called all Israel being saved. Verse 26 and onwards. I will make a covenant of peace with them. I will, it will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. And now as a side note, this sanctuary is the same word in Hebrew as the word we usually translate as tabernacle. I won't say anything more about that right now, but I wanted to point it out because when I preach about the tabernacle in September, I will, so stay tuned. He says, uh, I will put my sanctuary among them. My dwelling place will be with them. And now this is starting to sound an awful lot like the end of the book of Revelation. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Which, of course, is the promise that came through Moses a long before that, and is fulfilled at the end of all things in Revelation. And finally, then the nations will know. The nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy. The end of all things is that the nations, that is the Gentiles, will know that Yahweh, the true God, is the God whose primary interest, as far as humanity goes, is in Israel's holiness. What does that mean? I don't know, but whatever else that may mean, it certainly means that Israel is and always will be central to God's eternal plan to redeem all of creation. Now, I'm guessing that some of us, maybe even many of us in a long sermon, may be feeling a little bit of impatience with all of this. If I'm a Gentile, what does any of this have to do with me? Why does any of this matter? And that's a question that most Gentiles would naturally ask. But in itself, it betrays our blind captivity to replacement theology. The question of Israel's relevance is important because it is key to understanding our destiny, our, uh, properly understanding our place, our role in the world. As I said earlier, there is a real danger of reading yourself and your selfish interests into the scriptures. When you refuse to grapple with the Bible's view of Israel, you are bound to start to interpret the Bible symbolically to suit yourself. And the more you fancy the symbolism that you think you find there, the less able you are to take what it says at face value, the less you're interested in taking what it says seriously. When you question the relevance of Israel to your life, regardless of your official theology, you are guilty of replacing Israel with your church and its goals, or with your nation and its interests, or just with yourself. So why does any of this matter? It matters because one measure of our Christ-likeness, whether or not we resemble the Messiah, is whether we are willing to identify with his people. Taking our place in the cultivated olive tree, taking our place at the historical margins, far from what the world understands to be the dominant culture, the culture of power and prestige and influence. I said earlier that this can have even more widespread and devastating consequences. 
And early on, I mentioned that replacement theology has been the de facto theology of most Christians since the beginning of church history. When it comes to Israel, Protestants, Catholics, and Orthodox Christians have all been guilty of the very attitudes that Paul warned us against holding. Ignorance, arrogance, boastfulness, conceit. We have assumed that the church is the everlasting root and that Israel was a branch or was, as the Reformed theologian I mentioned earlier put it, a temporary administration of the eternal church. When the church thinks that it is the new Israel, and then it becomes inseparable from state power, as it was for well over a thousand years in the West, and as it always has been, take note, in Russia, aside from the 70-year-long Soviet disaster, the state starts to think that it has a divine destiny. When the state and church leadership are dominated by people accustomed to interpreting biblical prophecy symbolically, they assume that they have the right and even the responsibility to use state power to bring about a worldly utopia, the kingdom of God made in its own image, with a divine license to coerce, and to kill in order to fulfill what it sees as an inevitable God-given mandate. You might be able to see where I'm going with this. Within most of Europe during the church age, the violence was restrained by the fact that mostly everyone belonged to the same church. And so not only did they take the Bible very seriously, in each location, they all interpreted the Bible in pretty much the same way. So the worst violence happened on the fringes, on the borders between East and West, between North and South, against Jews, against Muslims and others seen as infidels. The danger of the Reformation was that each church understood itself to be the new Israel. And princes of Europe waged a 30-year-long holy war against one another, in which, in some places, half of the population was killed off. It was out of the chaos of that catastrophic, catastrophic event that the world began to organize itself into nation-states, countries, with firmer ideas of borders and sovereignty, and the tolerant secular philosophy of liberalism began to proliferate, a philosophy that, for all its usefulness, in keeping us from killing each other, has gradually eaten away at our faith in the Bible and in one another. In the meantime, however, Protestants retained their view of themselves as the new Israel. And especially since the Protestants who came to North America saw themselves as pilgrims entering the Promised Land, they had very few qualms about displacing and killing the new Canaanite tribes they found there. Still, among their own, they were restrained by their profound respect for the scriptures. And they had a genuine commitment to Christ-like love and mercy that usually, though not always, also informed their dealings with those they were seeking to evangelize. By the 19th century, 
Though pretty much everyone still went to church, the clergy had increasingly stopped believing in miracles. Stopped believing in the Bible as a book that could be read in any kind of plain sense. But they retained a belief in God, albeit, albeit a more progressive, more scientifically and ethically respectable God. They still read and increasingly replaced plain readings of the Bible with symbolic ones. They respected their Bibles, but they respected their intellects more. And they retained the inherited and abiding sense that they were the new Israel with a special mission from God. Progress and moral uplift were the watchwords. The historical gospel of personal sin, the real danger of eternal wrath and divine grace through Christ's real atoning death was replaced by the social gospel of corporate sin and of redemption effected by the Christ nation. I'm going to say that again. The historical gospel of personal sin, the real danger of eternal wrath and judgment, and of divine grace through Christ's real atoning death and resurrection was replaced in many places over 150 years ago by the social gospel of corporate sin and a redemption effected by the Christ nation. Incidentally, residential schools were just one of the holy missions that were undertaken to force those seen as poor, benighted souls onward and upward, to enforce the spiritual kingdom of God on earth. The explosion of technology and colonial ambitions at the end of the 19th century inevitably brought these advanced European nations into conflict with one another. When World War I erupted, they all claimed to be Christians, a name at least. And each set of allies who saw themselves as the genuine new Israel understood their side to be engaged not only in a holy war, but in ironically, ironically in that they thought it was literal, Armageddon. Each side was engaged in a holy war that they understood to be Armageddon in a literal way. That's why they called it the war to end all wars. For the first time since the Thirty Years' War, there was no restraint shown, no quarter given to fellow Christians. And historians think that it was not so much the technology evolution of technology that made the First World War so devastating and violent and brutal, but the fact that everyone believed it to be a holy war, and they could not lose. They could not come to terms with one another. Countries that had previously been friendly as Christian nations fought bitterly to the death. Not surprisingly, that over a hundred years ago, was really the beginning of the end as far as church attendance was concerned. The churches, especially the progressive churches, the ones that pushed hardest for the war, lost all credibility. And the secular state that had previously marked in lo marched in lockstep with the churches 
began to distance itself. Instead of repentance, the liberal churches doubled down on their increasingly rootless, spiritualizing, symbolic theology, their metaphorical understanding of the Bible. The politicians who made up the secular elite, although they had largely lost any meaningful personal faith, still held on to the sense of divine calling of their own nations, though. So when the European nations once again gathered for war in 1939, they were still new Israels fighting on each side in all but name. And of course, one side, as we know, even harbored the demonic delusion that they had a duty to utterly eradicate the old Israel, the true Israel. And then throughout the so-called Cold War, and since then, the West has still considered itself a chosen people. Though the theological moorings have been discarded, we still claim something like a divine calling to advance our rights and ideals along with our economy. We're not the only ones, of course, don't get me wrong. The new Israel is always willing to kill liberally to advance the cause of peace, as well as progress and prosperity, which are now seen as equally valid and important. The liberal churches now are empty, branches broken off because of unbelief, just as God warned through Paul if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you. The 20th century, what was once called the American century, a century of death and destruction has not ended. The occasional armistice is called, but the total war of the new Israel, the so-called war to end all wars, keeps going and going, flaring up in different places around the world every few years, promoting peace, progress, and prosperity, slowly destroying the capacity of the planet to sustain life. New Israel grows and expands, invading, merging, assimilating everything in its path, usually, sadly, with the encouragement and blessing of conservative evangelicals like us. And ironically, fundamentalists were the only brand of Christians over 100 years ago who had the courage to stand up and speak against the reinterpretation of the gospel as peace, progress, and prosperity. They were the ones who stood up against the building of empire against the conditions of the residential schools. But we're left holding the bag now because the liberal churches don't exist anymore, basically. So what is the solution? And there are many questions to answer 
given this theology that the Bible doesn't give us a lot of clear answers to. But we know that we are called to embrace Israel, to love Israel as Paul has defined Israel. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and the Messiah who is God overall. Has God replaced Israel? Never may it be. How about you? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for working in ways that are unexpected, for doing what we could never ask or imagine even. Thank you for the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Thank you that they are beyond searching out. Thank you that we are called to repent in humility, to take our place alongside your chosen ones, to accept that election, not to glory in any human sense, but to the glory of your Son who died for us, who became a slave that you may exalt him to the highest place. Oh God, give us the humility to see this. Help us not to simply prop up the priorities of the world around us, but to be salt and light, to be grafted in to your good and desirable olive tree. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Thank you all for coming this morning. As a benediction, I'm going to read the passage from Isaiah that we didn't visit. As for me, this is the end of Isaiah 59, as for me, no, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising, O Israel. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. 
because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah and those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you and rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud, like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me. The ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children, O Israel, from afar. Their silver and gold with them, for the name of Yahweh your God, and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you, O Israel, beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. The nation that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations, you shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold, and instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace, true peace, and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall no more be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord, Yahweh, will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be, the Lord Yahweh will be your everlasting light. And your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting. The work of my hands. That I might be glorified. The least one shall be called a clan. And the smallest one a mighty nation. 
I am the Lord, Yahweh. In its time, I will hasten it. Amen. Go in God's grace.